We're going to be beginning something different tonight. You were uh, working through the Psalms when I came here, when uh, God was kind to bring me here as pastor, and we finished that up two weeks ago. Trey Clinney shared with us about Connect Groups uh, last Wednesday night, and tonight I want us to begin um, an overview series of the Bible. So what we'll do is tonight we'll overview Genesis, we'll skip Exodus, because you can come on Sunday morning and get something better than an overview, you can get a lot of detail, and then we'll move through each book of the Bible on these Wednesday nights. Um, so we'll, we'll be here for a while. Most of what you'll get in your overview outlines on Wednesday night will be informational, and then we'll uh, talk about application in our teaching time here. Um, but this will be structured in such a way that if you would like to do so, you can tuck these away and have a nice outline of every biblical book and some helpful points on each book once we come to the end of our study. Tonight, um, We'll look at Genesis and we'll kind of establish the pattern for our looks at each of these biblical books. What, what I've done in, in your notes, if you've looked over them already, is identified three themes in the book of Genesis. And I really do think that these three themes hold everything together here in Genesis. Creation, obviously, in chapters 1 and 2 where uh, God's creative work is detailed. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And then in chapters 3 through 11, sin and judgment. Sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3, and from chapters 4 through 11, in fact, from chapter 4 through the end of the Bible, we see the effects of sin in the world, but specifically dealt with sin and judgment and what that brings um, in chapters 3 through 11. There, there's, a, there's a way of looking at Genesis, and it's a, it's a correct way of looking at Genesis as a two-part book. Chapters 1 through 11, and then chapters 12 through 50. Chapter 1 through 11 is often referred to as primeval history, early human history. And then chapters 12 and following is the history of the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and even the, the, the children, the sons of, of Jacob. And uh, chapters 37 through 50 focuses uh, almost exclusively on Joseph. But chapters uh, 3 through 11 focus on sin and judgment, and then chapters 12 through 50, I've described as um, the theme of, of salvation and the people of God. You get to chapter 12, what is God going to do now in light of sin and judgment? What's, what's going to happen moving forward that's going to deliver the people of God, if there are to be such a people as the people of God, in what way will God work in order to resolve this issue of, of sin in the world. The interesting thing about Genesis is that although it introduces the theme of sin entering the world, it, the Bible does not give us an account for the problem of evil, the, the question of where evil comes from or uh, how a good God exists and lords over a world in which evil is present. That's, that's kind of the age-old conundrum Christians have struggled to try to answer that question. But that's not what Genesis sets out to do, and it's not what the Bible ever sets out to do. Rather than having this theory, this philosophy that helps us to understand the origin of evil, God just says, let me show you what I'm going to do about the presence of evil. 
Rather than this concept that we sort of hang our hats on, God is actively at work, powerfully, I would add, resolving the problem and presence of evil in our life. And I think you'll see what I mean as we move through. In Genesis 1 and verse 1, and what I've done in your outline is given you references under uh, each of the points in the outline and given you space in order to make notes there should you choose to do so. Genesis 1-1 is, is the standard verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then when you come down to verses 26 and following of chapter 1, you have an account of the apex of God's creative work, his creation of mankind. Verse 26 of Genesis 1 says that God then said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This food will be for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. Now, there's not a lot here that requires a great deal of explanation. But I want you to take note that virtually everything said here informs the Christian worldview. When, when I say the Christian worldview, I mean the way we see the world in Christ. And the gospel affects the way we see the world. If you are a believer in the gospel, you should see the world differently than your run-of-the-mill neighbor. We see things differently because of what we know through God's Word. There's so many uh, things that seem to be so sensible, common sense in fact, that are answered for or accounted for here in our passage. We are made in the image of God, male and female. Who would have ever thought we'd reach a point in our society where this would be questionable? But that's sort of where we are. God says, be fruitful and multiply. Among the responsibilities that we have as mankind, we are to fill the earth. That, that is, we are to take for ourselves, in the case of you men, a wife. In the case of you women, a husband. And you are to be fruitful and multiply. But even that notion is called into question. I think most people listened to the comments of one presidential candidate a few nights ago that suggested that abortion was necessary in order to beat back climate change. We're overpopulating the world, and we're astonished at that. But even within Christian circles, we don't regard the rearing of children or the birth of children in the same way that former generations did. Like If you, you roll in somewhere with four, five, six, seven, eight, nine children, the first thing someone wants to know is what's wrong with you, you know? But all throughout the Scripture, 
the Bible celebrates children as an indication of the presence of God's blessing in our life. In fact, God says in Deuteronomy 28, which is such a critical passage, if you'll obey me, I'll make you fruitful. And, and in the scripture moving forward, especially in the case of the kings, the way the biblical author will often indicate the favor of God in a person's life is by the birth of children. When David becomes king over Judah, then you have a genealogy that follows. And the indication that every Israelite would have understood was, this is evidence of God's favor in his life. He's having children. When David goes to Jerusalem and he rules over all of Judah and Israel, there's yet another genealogy there, the children that are born to David. Here's further indication of the presence and the favor of God in David's life. Here the Bible says that mankind is to have dominion over the birds of the air, the fish of the soul, and within my own lifetime is, is the, the way we have elevated the status of animal life while at the same time devaluing human life. It's, it's a felony to kill a dog, which I'm not advocating for. And, and yet we're, we're north of 60 million abortions in our country over the last 50-some-odd years. So these fundamental things that we take for granted here, that you'll be apt on January 1 when you start your new Read the Bible Through program and you sit down with Genesis 1, you will breeze through these things and give them very little thought. But I'm telling you that, that Genesis 1 and 2, as much as any other concise text in the Bible, informs the Christian worldview. It has something to say of, of who we are. In fact, all of Genesis has something to say of, of, of who we are. We could spend a lot of time there. I, 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 just, I want to say enough that you wouldn't take what God has done there for granted, but I want us to move next to this whole notion of sin and judgment because it's of critical importance here in this section, and it's of critical importance in the remainder of Scripture. There are several examples of this cycle of sin and judgment in Genesis 3 through 11. The best known is uh, Genesis 3 itself, where uh, Adam and Eve take of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They sin against God. And as a result, both Adam and Eve fall. We'll talk in some detail about that in a moment. There is uh, the murder of Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. There is this mysterious passage in Genesis 6 where the Bible says the sons of God come and intermarry with the daughters of men. And it's after that that God observes that every thought of mankind is bent on evil. And the scripture says that he regretted that he had created them. In the following chapter, Noah is identified as a righteous man that God would deliver through the flood of his coming judgment, and God destroys all of humanity save Noah and his family on the ark. There's some interesting parallels there after the flood. You have this righteous man, Noah, who's on the ark. The flood comes. Everything is killed. In some ways, Noah is the next Adam. It's a fresh start. Adam had failed to honor the command of God in the garden. So Noah and his family disembark. The waters recede. And there is Noah as the planter of the first vineyard. There he is, just like Adam was, in a garden. And he took of the fruit of that garden and made for himself wine, which might have been okay except that he drank entirely too much. 
and Noah shames himself, and his sons find him drunk and naked in the garden, naked and embarrassed, just like Adam in Genesis chapter 3. The first Adam didn't get the job done, and the next Adam in Noah didn't get the job done. In Genesis 11, you have all of the people of the world gathered together at the Tower of Babel. In fact, in the city of Babylon, they construct what we know as the Tower of Babel. We'll look at that passage in detail. But we have this cycle of people gathering together, only able to come up with what God determines to be wicked and the judgment of God falling against them. Look to Genesis 3 uh, at verses 8 through 19. Just prior to verse 8, they've taken the fruit. They've sinned. And now in verses 8 and following, they're, they're hiding. Verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at that time of the evening breeze. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. The King James says it, in a more memorable way, perhaps, it says, in the cool of the day, God came and walked in the garden. It's one, of my, it's one of my favorite verses in the scripture. In the cool of the day, God came and he, he walked in, in the midst of the garden. And then one of the saddest phrases in the Bible follows immediately after, and they hid themselves from the presence of God. In verse 9, the Bible says, So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, As men have been responding now for thousands of years, it was the woman you gave. She gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, It was the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You'll move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You'll bear children in anguish. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to Adam, because you listened to your wife's voice and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You'll eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to the dust." This, this passage is a really good place to talk to your kids about exposure to ungodliness. Genesis 3 is where I always go when my boys want to know why they can't have smartphones. Now, if you see my 14-year-old running around with a smartphone, technically he does have a smartphone because they look cool, but what you don't know is that it doesn't have data. Because... It just doesn't seem prudent to me to expose them to what they might be exposed to at 14 years old. Every manner of ungodliness is available to our children through their smartphone devices. Now, 
this is a good passage to teach it from for this reason. Once Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there was no reversing the effect of that in their life. And, I, and I'm just telling you, moms and dads, y'all listen carefully here. Once your kids are exposed specifically to pornography, but other images and information as well, there, there is no undoing that exposure. There's, there's just not. Um, there's, there's no way to turn back the hands of time. There was no way for Adam or Eve to undo what had been done once they had taken of the fruit. And what I try to encourage my kids in is, is that you don't even know how disastrous the consequences of what you might do will be. And you're going to have to trust me as your father that it's bad for you. And it's bad enough that if you knew, you wouldn't do it. But you don't know, so you're just going to have to trust me. And, 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 and that's a difficult thing for kids to do. And the reason I know that is because it's a difficult thing for adults to do. But that's exactly what Genesis is describing. That scenario, God says, this will be bad for you. I, I, I know there's a snake that says it feels good, that it will be good, and it will make you be like a God. But in reality, it diminishes the image of God in you. It distorts the image of God in you. The, the consequences are disastrous. Now, there are a number of effects that this sin in the garden has on Adam and Eve. There's seven, in fact, if I could work through them quickly. Number one, they're cut out of the garden. One of the interesting things about Genesis is how, how so much of what's happening in Genesis is reversed in the rest of the Scripture. The, the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden. Where, where does it end? It, it ends in the Garden of God. The, the angel that is fixed there with sword in hand, a flaming sword to prevent Adam and Eve from entering the Garden of Eden is, is now removed by the power of Christ's shed blood for our sin. The, the curse of Adam is ultimately reversed and we are restored to the Garden, but for the time being, Adam and Eve are not permitted to go back there. Their relationship with God changed where they had enjoyed close fellowship with God now they're separated from God. That, that breach in relationship is what all of the Bible is about, isn't it? How can an ungodly people be restored to favor and relationship with an absolutely holy God? Everything from this point forward is about that. Thirdly, the, the nature of their existence changed. Um, I've heard people say that work is the consequence of the fall. That's not true. Work is the product of the image of God in us. It's what makes us enjoy building things and creating things and thinking about things. It's, it's what makes us enjoy, to some extent, the work that we participate in. But it's, it's the fall that makes us dread the work that we participate in. Work is not the result of the fall. You not liking to go to work is the result of the fall. The nature of Adam and Eve's existence was changed. It went from pleasantness to unpleasantness as a result of, of the sin. Uh, a, a fourth consequence of Adam and Eve's sin was the curse of the earth, that the ground itself would be cursed. Adam would farm, fighting off thistles and thickets and weeds of of every sort. Romans 8 says the creation itself 
groans with expectation at the day of redemption. The coming of Christ will mean not only our redemption, but the redemption of creation itself from the curse of Adam's sin. A fifth effect, their relationship with one another has changed. The trust between Adam and Eve is breached so that even before God provides for them clothes, they cover themselves with leaves from within the the garden. Their trust for one another is broken. Their relationship with one another is is changed. Even the dynamics of the husband-wife relationship are changed. He will want to lord over you. Your your desire will will be to lord over him. If If you have fought with your spouse today, it's Adam's fault. And you will, for the rest of your life, battle with that temptation. You will struggle with that issue as a result of uh, the curse of Adam's sin in our life. Death, obviously, is a consequence of the sin in the garden. Apart from sin, there is no death. The consequence of sin is earthly death and eternal death under the judgment of God. But the seventh and the greatest consequence of Adam's sin in the garden was the curse of sin that lords over our earthly lives. Now I want you to understand, and this is such an important biblical doctrine, that when Adam fell, we all fell in Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned in Adam. You are guilty as a sinner, not only because of the decisions that you make personally, But even prior to that, because of the decision that your father Adam made thousands of years ago in the garden. On the the surface, that seems patently unfair. But it becomes the basis for one of the best illustrations of the gospel for Paul in the New Testament. Because in the same way that you are guilty because of a decision that someone else made, You are, by faith in Jesus, counted as righteous because of a decision that someone... But as a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why the New Testament talks about Jesus as the new, the better, the second Adam. Through the first Adam, mankind fell, mankind died. But for those of us who, by faith, are in Christ... There is life and life everlasting. What Jesus does at the cursed tree is to reverse the curse of Adam against us and to set us free from the bondage of sin in our life. We may get stretched for time here in a moment, but for now we're going to plod on. Look just for a moment at... at, um, Well, go to Genesis 11. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. This is the Tower of Babel passage. I talked about this in a Celebrate Recovery meeting on a Friday night weeks back, and for that reason, I almost left this out. But I do think that this is such an important part of what Genesis is teaching. In, in, in chapter 11, verses 1 and following, the Bible says, At one time, the whole earth had the same language and the same vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let's make oven-fired bricks And they used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. Now at this point, they're doing precisely what God created us to do. They are exercising their creative tendency that is the result of the image of God in us. This is what he instructed us to do. 
to multiply, to fill the earth. And that, that, mean, that filling the earth is not just about having children. It's not only being fruitful in that sense. It's also about building and construction and livestock and, and establishing a civilization. That's what God intended for us to do. But in their gathering, in their fulfilling this creative itch, they set their gaze on evil and not good. Verse 4 says, They said among themselves, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, just quickly, what they're describing there is, is the building of a tower that would mean security for their city. If you as a city had walls and a tower, then you were a well-fortified city. That made you defensible. Uh, you, you could see the enemy coming from a great distance, and you could put yourself, because of the tower, in a defensible, advantageous military position. If you were an invading army, what you did not want to see when you came over the horizon was a tower. You could throw things from the tower. You could hide in the tower. You could spot from the tower. The tower was military advancement at its best in Genesis chapter 11. They say, let's build a tower, establish a city around the tower, and make a name for ourselves. Now, what they've set out to do is what sin always promises to deliver. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let, let's, let's make for ourselves an identity. Let's get ourselves a tower. Let's enjoy security. Everyone wants security. And let's build a city. Let's establish community. Those three things, identity, security, and community. We are hardwired as people to want for those three things. Would you agree with that? Every sin that entices you promises to provide these three basic needs. Now, the deal is sin counterfeits those needs. It can never really scratch that itch, but this is what it promises, identity and security and community. Now, hold that thought. At the end of Genesis 11 uh, and the Tower of Babel account, the, the Bible says that God confused the languages of the people and he dispersed them. I said to you a moment ago that so much of what's happening in Genesis 1 through 11 is reversed in the New Testament. Do you realize that the Tower of Babel has its reversal in the New Testament as well, right? In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God falls and the disciples speak plainly in the language of all those who are gathered there. The curse of Babel is reversed at the falling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I could sort of get off track here, and this is probably reflective of my being a parent, but I think in a rather wicked way, the World Wide Web has reversed the curse of Babel in a rather evil way. It, it, has, it has attempted to undo the, the dispersion of, of people and the scattering of languages, and it has proved in the hands of wicked people to be a rather evil tool, but that's a discussion for another day. Remember at the Tower of Babel, there was the want for identity and for security and for community. Now look to Genesis 12, and we're, at, we're, we're now arriving in that section of, of Genesis that covers the third theme that we mentioned a little while ago, um, the theme of salvation and the people of God. In chapter 12, we're introduced to a man named Abram. He lives in Ur of the Chaldeans. That's in what later is known as Babylon in our Old Testaments. It's way out 
um, to the east of the promised land. He is there tending the flocks of his father, Terah. He is the oldest son. His father, Terah, is a wealthy man. And so in ancient Near Eastern culture, when Terah died, Abram would inherit all of the male and female servants, all of the livestock, all of the responsibility, all of the dignity, all of the power, all of the authority, all of the money of his father, Terah. Abram was in line to be the head of that family. And then God shows up in chapter 12 in verse 1, and he says to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now think for a moment about what's being described here. Come out from the community, from the identity, and the security that you have enjoyed in your father's family. Come away from what would be yours in Ur of the Chaldeans. And come to a land that I will show you. And verse 2 says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God says, Abram, if you'll come away from the identity, the security, and the community that your family and that setting has offered you, I'll give you a new identity in me. I'll give you a new sense of security. I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse the ones who curse you. I'll take care of you. And I'll give you community like you have never imagined. I'll make you, Abram, the father of a great nation. Now, this is essentially the tension that exists in each of our hearts when temptation arises. Will we resist the counterfeit identity, community, and security that sin offers us in favor of what has been provided for us in Christ? Or will we buy the fleeting, passing, counterfeit promise of Satan and ultimately in the end find ourselves bankrupt, broken, without identity, security, or community whatsoever? Now, I think that, I think that theme runs throughout the book of Genesis, that, that tension between God promising something good Something good that we're going to have to receive by faith because we can't see the consequences. We don't see the outcome. Or, or, or buying wholesale this earthly cheap counterfeit of what God has promised that leaves us jaded and frustrated and broken and battered and dead in our sins and trespasses. So from Genesis 12 on, there is the story of, of how God is going to work through a specific people. And he's going to work through this specific people, the descendants of Abram, soon to be Abraham, in order that all the nations of the earth would know that he and he alone is God. God begins to identify this people. He begins with Abram here, and it works to Israel where we are in the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings. But he's always actively working with Abram to Israel in such a way that neighboring nations and in our day and age, the four corners of the world would know that he and he alone is the true and living God. So Abram gives birth to a son, but not before a series of missteps. Abram gives, finally, Abram, we should probably credit Sarah, right, with giving birth to the son, not so much Abraham. Um, but he has a son named Isaac, who is the son of promise. 
only after a sort of a soap opera twist where Sarah says, hey, I have a handmaid, have a child with her, and he'll be the son of promise. You probably know how that resulted. The, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that you see in the nightly news is the product of what happened in Abraham and Sarah's bedroom some thousands of years ago and the foolish decision that they would try to help God do what he had promised he would do in their life. Isaac marries Rebekah, and eventually they have sons, Jacob and Esau. I had brothers in my last church that reminded me of Jacob and Esau, and I used to call them that and make illustrations of that, and they finally got mad at me and quit letting me do that. But they really would make you think of Jacob and Esau, one a big, burly, hairy man, and the other uh, not effeminate in any way, but certainly not the big, burly man that is brother. He's the one that made me stop using the illustration, so I had to back <laughs> off of that. But this is the two brothers, you know. And you got, you got big, burly Esau. And then you've got Jacob, the kind of spindly deceiver. And Jacob is the son of promise. And Jacob's deceptive ways are only broken at last by the deception of his uncle Laban. If you remember the story, uh, Jacob sets his eyes on uh, uh, Rachel. And Laban tricks him after a night of drinking into taking Leah first. Just reason number 996, drinking is not a good idea. But he lost seven years of his life to, to his uncle Laban's deception. You see all kinds of issues. If, if anyone ever tells you that plural marriage is advocated for in the Bible, you'll, by, by that I mean having multiple wives, that may need some definition, you'll, you'll know that they didn't read Genesis. In fact, they didn't read anything the Bible said about having more than one wife. If you don't know this already, men, I'll tell you tonight, it's just a bad idea. And, and it always causes trouble. There's always problems. One of, the, one of the things that resulted from Jacob's having more than one wife was that the, the children of those wives wound up being at odds with one another. In fact, there was one of the boys named Joseph who was his daddy's favorite son. And, and Joseph, at one point, was given by his father a coat of many colors. It's like getting a Cadillac for your 16th birthday. And, and, and he probably had a little ego problem. And he had a dream one night, and he, and he probably should have kept that to himself, but he didn't do that either. And eventually the brothers had enough. And in Genesis 37, they, they thought about killing him. But instead, they decided to put him in a pit. And there was a band of Ishmaelites that came by. And the Ishmaelites were headed down to Egypt, and they were slave traders. In fact, they traded in most everything, but in this case, they were trading slaves. And they sold their brother Joseph into slavery, sold him to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites went down to Egypt, and they sold Joseph into slavery in Potiphar's house. And there he was, sold into slavery in Potiphar's house, and he served the Lord well. The Bible says that the Lord was with Joseph. But eventually, Joseph being the handsome young man that he was, he caught the attention of Potiphar's wife. And when he refused the advances of Potiphar's wife, she made a false accusation against him that he'd assaulted her. And it was told to Potiphar. Now, I've always wondered if Potiphar wasn't suspicious that her accusation was not true. He could have just killed Joseph, but instead he had him put in prison. Uh, 
Now Joseph, once the favored son, has gone from being sold into slavery to now imprisoned. And there in, in prison, Joseph sharpened his abilities to interpret dreams. And he encountered the baker and the butler of Pharaoh one day. And they told a dream, and he provided the interpretation. And he encouraged them that, that when they were released to go back and to tell the Pharaoh of his dream interpretive powers. And he hoped that then he would be released. But they forgot him. And for 13 years, Joseph stayed in prison in the nation of Egypt, at, uh, of no fault of his own. He didn't, he didn't do anything, really, to be there. And, and what, what's happening there is, is the line of Joseph as a descendant of Abraham is in jeopardy. It's in danger. In fact, I, I hope we might have time to talk about Genesis 38 if you're a student of Genesis, you know that the Joseph story begins in chapter 37, and then all of a sudden in chapter 38, there's this discussion of Judah and Tamar, who goes and dresses up like a prostitute, camps out by the road, and has this illegitimate child that later becomes legitimate. There's this whole scandal that's happening there, and it seems so out of sorts, so out of place. What's happening in Genesis 37 is that the ancestry of Joseph is in jeopardy of ending. There'll be no lineage of Joseph. What's happening in Genesis 38 is the same thing. The lineage of Judah is in jeopardy of ending. There are three sons of Judah. Two of them have already died as a consequence of their sin, and, and now there's no son, there's, there's no child. And only through this illicit affair, is about all you could call it as a child, God is actively working providentially, even in the insanity of his own crazy people, to preserve this line through which he'll save a people all his own. The same's happening with Joseph. He goes away, and for 13 years he's there until one night Pharaoh has a dream. You remember the dream? Whenever I think about this, I think about VeggieTales. I've watched Little Joe, the VeggieTales version of this story, so many times I can barely get cucumbers out of my mind when I read this passage. <laughs> and he sees the seven big cows and seven skinny cows and the sheaves and all that he sees and 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 Joseph tells the interpretation and and the Pharaoh lets him go and ultimately Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt the most powerful man second only to the Pharaoh in in all of in all of Egypt God was working providentially to preserve the line of Abraham look to Genesis 50 beginning in verse 15 now part of this verse you'll know but I, I want us to read, and this will close our time together, at least our time in Bible study, verses 15 through 21. Verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he'll certainly repay us for all the sufferings we caused him. And so they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when their message came. Then his brothers came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. 
Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, I said a couple of weeks ago when we started our study in Exodus that that verse provided the context for, for moving forward in Exodus. Verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But it also provides us here with a summary and an explanation of everything that we've read in Genesis so far. That even when Adam and Eve worked for evil, when Cain lashed out against his brother and it seemed that, that all was lost in a moment, when Noah drank himself drunk on the fruit of the vine, when the Tower of Babel became a place of cursed, at every turn where people acted crazy, God, God was at work above, beneath, within, below, around, superintending their intentions. God was doing something remarkable in spite of the pitiful decision-making of his people. He's gracious that way, isn't he? Even when evil things, legitimately evil things, when bad things are happening, when bad things are being done, God is at work in ways that are beyond our comprehension to preserve a people all his own and to, and to bring glory to his own name. Today, you can't help but wonder the millions on millions of ways that God has taken that fateful event from 18 years ago to, to open doors and opportunities for gospel advancement that might otherwise have never been afforded to us. And we just don't know. We like to think we do, and we look back and we say, well, this happened in my life, so now this is what God did. When we're aware of one or two things that God is doing in our life, he's usually doing about nine million more that we're completely unaware of. God is good. So if we go back to where we started, at least near the beginning of our discussion, the whole problem of the presence of evil in this world is, as believers, we're not encumbered by the presence of evil. We're, we're not troubled at this. God is good and great, and, and he has overcome the powers of darkness. He has overcome the prince of this world. He has indeed overcome the world. He is good and worthy of all praise.